Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we are excited to welcome to the podcast today my old friend Terry Renault. Terry's an instructional professor in social sciences at the University of Chicago, and he's also author of the new book, New Lefts, The Making of a Radical Tradition. And this topic is of particular interest to me, and I think a lot of you, because it really addresses directly the question of what Terry refers to the, in the book as form. What should a left organization look like? Should there be left organizations? And uh, all those questions related to that. So, Terry, I just want to start off with that basic question. What got you interested in, in the question of form? And what do you think has been missing from historical analyses or, you know, in general, critical analyses of the left? Well, thanks for having me on the pod. So this is a book that's fundamentally about organizational form or forms, I should say, and by that, I mean all the kind of weird and alternative ways that uh, usually small leftist groups in, in Germany, throughout Western Europe, try to organize, um, often in the struggle against fascist movements, uh, directly uh, in the form of underground struggle, but sometimes indirectly, just generally in the, the landscape of European politics in the interwar years. And uh, what did alternative mean? Well, Alternative organization could be a non-party form of organization in opposition to what many of these kind of radical leftist thinkers perceive to be authoritarian tendencies within the mass parties of the left that uh, were still very much active and hegemonic on the left scene in the interwar years. Uh, obviously, the Stalinized communist parties would have evinced bureaucratic and authoritarian tendencies, but even and even especially uh, mass social democratic parties and socialist parties were perceived by many radical leftists with, you know, quasi anarchist tendencies as having succumbed to that iron law of oligarchy. Um, there was a perceived democratic deficit within these organizations. So radical leftists who aim for revolution, for revolutionizing all circumstances of society, thought that these mass organizations, political organizations and union like labor organizations had somehow become integrated or assimilated into this capitalist uh, and, in their uh, estimation, an ex extreme form, fascist um, forms of society that needed to be opposed even within the ranks, the kind of in the internal sense within the organizations that these leftists formed themselves. So that's kind of what I mean by organizational form. And generally, I thought that uh, histories of the new left a term that we usually associate with the, so let's say, the late 1950s through the 1960s. Uh, and then in terms of intellectual history, it's something that you know becomes predominant in university campuses in the 1970s. I thought that there were important precursors to these post-war movements that called themselves new lefts uh, in the uh, interwar period. And I thought that by looking at organizational patterns, uh, the phenomena of organization, like the amount of small splinter groups that popped up on the margins of the mass parties in the 1920s and 30s, I might be able to tell a longer history of what I call new lefts, plural, 
uh, rather than focusing on the bounded period of time of the 60s um, and that ideological current that you know actually explicitly called itself the new left. So that kind of accounts for the broadest uh, scope uh, chronology of the book and its theme. So, uh, Terry, as I was reading uh, the book, uh, it occurred to me that uh, the the best thing I could probably bring to this discussion is the perspective uh, of somebody who really doesn't have any background in this field uh, at all. Um, I also want to say it's it's nice to have a uh, another University of Chicago and uh, on the program. It makes me feel less alone. Uh, but anyway, um, so I I thought coming from that perspective, uh, why don't we talk a little bit about terms here. What do you mean by neo-leftism or new left? Uh, what is typically thought of as, you know, the, the the sort of new left movement and the kind of, you know, where and when it, it, it kind of developed and who the major players were? And what uh, are you suggesting in the book uh, in terms of, you know, the ways that we should maybe change uh, how we approach that topic? So neo-leftism is the neologism that I came up with sort of toward the end of the process of, let's say, turning my PhD dissertation into this published book. Previously, I had kind of been examining reformulations of socialism, both in theory and practice, as we moved from this era of kind of revolutionary socialism in a variety of different forms. And, you know, I cared about various dissident, nonconformist, revolutionary socialists of the interwar years. Uh, to the post-war period, which, you know, by and large involved various kinds of social democratic modernization, reformism um, in the West. Uh, and then, you know, by the late 60s, we see some radical breaks with that uh, sort of mainstream. But when I was trying to kind of, you know, uh, pay more attention to my theoretical claims in reframing the book, uh, uh, new lefts, kind of the plural uh, term, and then neo-leftism came to mind as a general term to categorize or describe this long-term radical tradition of organizational ruptures with the mass party form and mass union forms of politics, which I date back to like the post-1917-1918 period in Western Europe. So this longer-term view is a bit different than standard studies of the new left, uh, which uh, focused on the 1960s. And I think in the best scholarship coming out in the last 15 years or so, um, the new left has been approached from a transnational or global perspective. So more or less, you know, uh, we're familiar with new left movements that formed in the kind of, uh, global North or Western metropoles. Um, that's, you know, in, in the United States, but in Paris and West Berlin to a certain extent in in Britain, um, there are other global new lefts, uh, Japan, kind of in a later period in Mexico, uh, throughout Latin America. Um, and uh, one of the preoccupations of the 1960s new left was anti-colonial solidarity uh, and attempting to link, let's say, uh, radical contestation in the metropoles, um, you know, contesting advanced capitalist states uh, uh, at the kind of point of you know highest level of advancement uh connecting that with anti-colonial struggles in the global south somehow and sometimes that was no more than an intellectual affinity but the most recent scholarship i'm uh, thinking of say like quinn slobodian's book foreign front 
variety of books that have come out on the global 60s. Um, they have actually charted real networks of organization between, let's say, Western European university students and uh, various like exchange students coming from Africa and um, other parts of the global south. Uh, and there was a mutual learning process. So there was real like organizational concrete solidarity that formed then. And that's a real hallmark, I, I would say, of the way that the new left is usually interpreted uh, or, or perceived in um, historical scholarship. I was just adding that longer term perspective to try to uncover a tradition that maybe these 1960s movements were drawing upon. So why don't we start at the beginning of that tradition? Would you begin uh, with George Lukash? Why don't you explain who Lukash was and, and the problem of organization that he was facing? In particular, I think people would be interested in Lenin's response to Lukash. Of course, Georg Lukash was a Hungarian Marxist philosopher, or I should say that he becomes a Marxist in 1918. I examined some of his writings on aesthetics and culture prior to that period, so his pre-Marxist writings, um, such as the the novel, uh, the theory, or the theory of the novel, I should say, the the book, the theory of the novels, and Soul and Forms. Some of these pre World War One, and then uh, books and this works that he was writing in World War One. Georg Lukács, though, became a key, crucial figure in the development of Western Marxism when he published uh, his book History and Class Consciousness, um, which appeared, I think, in early 1923, um, and this book uh, became famous because it really anticipated a lot of the developments in Marxist theory that would occur uh, some 10 years later or so when the early manuscripts of Marx were rediscovered and published by the Marx Engels Institute and other researchers. So those 1844 Paris manuscripts, all the kind of early Marx work that uh, filtered into a more Marxist humanist um, uh, approach. So Lukács, didn't have access to these documents, but since he was such a keen scholar of Hegel and, um, you know, uh, he was a, a sort of a critical reader of what Marx had been published at that point, he anticipated a lot of the claims about alienation, reification, class consciousness. Um, and uh, I think um, already in this book, History and Class Consciousness, which I, you know, analyze in some length in the book, especially his his polemic with Rosa Luxemburg and to a certain extent his, um, you know, uh, uh, ambivalence at first about the work of Lenin, although Lukács does sort of become a committed Leninist. Um, uh, there's already a reckoning with revolutionary defeat. Um, uh, Lukács himself was involved in the Hungarian revolution and the Soviet Republic that was established in 1919. He was a deputy commissar of culture and education. He uh, was famous or infamous for giving these kind of theoretical speeches to uh, the Hungarian Red Army when it was like dug in in the trenches fighting for the survival of the Republic that uh, spring and summer. But by the time he published that book, History and Class Consciousness, that revolution had been defeated. Uh, Horty's military dictatorship was established. A lot of Hungarian Marxists were in exile. Um, he himself was in Vienna at that time. Uh, and I think a lot of that melancholy reflection on defeat and failure, why did the working class not unite? Um, you know, why are these seeds of fascism already sprouting, or at least why is authoritarian uh, restoration or reaction kind of um, uh, winning out in Europe? All these kind of questions about defeat were, 
a subtext, I think, um, or between the lines of Lukács's work. Um, and it would go on to, for example, to have a great influence on the Frankfurt School and some of these other Marxist theories that developed also trying to take into account like why it is that the working masses, the working classes, had seemingly become integrated into advanced capitalist systems or had succumbed to the authoritarian personality or um, you know, whatever the diagnosis was, why had revolution failed in the West? And so I thought beginning the book with Lukash and paying attention especially to his sort of pre-Marxist and the Marxist writings on organizational form, you know, what type of uh, formation would, you know, adequately contest the institutional forms that have become prevalent under capitalism, you know, that would be a valuable way to begin the book. Just one note on Lenin, Another book that I spent some time analyzing that first chapter is, uh, I guess, a pamphlet that Lenin uh, handed out at the, um, I think it was a meeting of the, the Communist International, World Congress of the International in 1921. And it's known under the title, um, Left-Wing Communism and Infantile Disorder. It has a slightly different name in Russian, which I'll, I'll butcher, but I think it's Levizhny, which means leftism. Uh, so this was uh, current in international communist circles, leftism, ultra-leftism, uh, which generally was seeking to uh, engage in revolutionary action at any and all opportunities, rejected any kind of compromise with the bourgeois parliamentary parties of the left. Um, this is throughout Western Europe. There are various leftist currents in the Netherlands and France um, and in Germany. And Lenin uh, uh, associated Lukash with this tendency too in 1921, and so there's this general critique of what Lenin calls infantilism, which really means kind of the fetishization of like a radically democratic or syndicalist form of organization and a failure to recognize that the left needs to be more opportunist in its pursuit of state power. So at some phases in the struggle, uh, you need to have a disciplined party structure of this the type that Lenin was known to have, you know, designed uh, in like texts like "What Is to Be Done." But in other phases of the struggle, you need to be flexible. You need to be able to engage in direct action, in strike action, or you need to be able to engage in sort of a kind of a long reformist struggle. The point was not to fetishize any particular organizational form; it was to become experienced and almost omnivorous in all forms of political contestation and labor struggle. So that's what Lenin thought the Bolsheviks were good at. And that's how he disciplined uh, these childish radicals who, who uh, rejected that more, um, I guess, uh, heterogeneous form of left politics. Yeah, and it just shows the um, fecundity of the left conversation about strategy that took place in the teens and especially the 20s, which brings us to the group that your your book is really about, uh, New Beginning or Neu Beginning. Terry, maybe before we even get into them, I think listeners would need to know, broadly speaking, the shape of the German left when Neu Beginning begins in 1930, right? Um, so yes. what's the state of the SPD? What's the state of the KPD? Um, this is the beginning, of course, of Heinrich Bruning's presidential dictatorship. So why don't you just set the scene and, and explain why you focused on this group uh, and why in particular they're so important for leftists interested in strategy uh, to understand. So the main fact about the German left circa 1930, you know, in the twilight years of the Weimar Republic is that it was disunited, fragmented. And there was a, almost a blood feud that had developed between 
social democrats on the one hand and uh like party communists on the other because of what was uh widely seen as and i and i think you know we can historically confirm was a historic betrayal of the uh revolutionary left in 1919 when the social democrat minister of defense gustav noska gave approval to these far-right paramilitary gangs to kidnap and assassinate Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, the leaders of the nascent Communist Party at the time. So uh, this act of betrayal was never forgiven, um, and bitter animosity uh, just deepened over the course of the 1920s between the two major factions of the German political left. And of course, um, there was a great deal of integration between organized labor and the political left. So the Social Democrats had their own aligned trade unions and the communists had alternative trade unions, um, sometimes working in the same shop. So by the time 1930 rolls around, um, this division on the German left became even more salient because this was the so-called third period in the communist international when the left wing of the party, uh, and in some cases, ultra left was ascendant, uh, and any compromise with bourgeois parties was rejected. Um, and, uh, there would be no kind of official unity or coalition with social Democrats. Um, so this was the communist party line internationally. And as applied in Germany, it, it sort of meant that, um, there were occasional times when let's say communists and Nazis, were out on the street, you know, um, often fighting each other, but sometimes, you know, engaged in common action because of their, uh, you know, the, you know, their hatred and disgust for the Democratic Republic. But one more note: the Social Democrats were not in government any longer when 1930 rolled around. So they were in opposition, and a lot of people on the left thought that if communists and Social Democrats could only come up with some kind of unity of action. It wouldn't have to be any kind of unity of program, but simply a united anti-fascist front, then perhaps they would have greater success in the elections and would be able to outmaneuver this kind of right-wing front and particularly the Nazi party. One more event occurred in 1932, and this is already after the formation of my main case study, the New Beginning Group. Um, and that's this sort of uh, a coup in the, in the state of Prussia, the province of Prussia, which essentially saw the Nazi party. The Preussenschlag. Um, indeed. Take over the Prussian government and Hermann Goering took over the police force. The Prussian police force was like the nucleus of what would become the Gestapo under the Nazi regime. Uh, and this was a moment in July 1932 when everyone on the left called for a general strike and there's general rank and file support for a general they, strike. They were, uh, they were invoking the cap puts, right? The, if the right it, yeah. could strike, so could the left. This was a really big moment, and particularly it was in huge. Berlin. Yeah. It was huge, and the party leaders, specifically the leaders of the Social Democratic Party, refused to call the strike. And this was seen as a great betrayal. So I think an amount of alienation... I've also got to say, Terry, just like the people yes. that I focus on in my book, the, the kind of the, the left-wing people who, who came, became effectively liberals, um, this was also their move away from the left uh, yeah. because it seemed to demonstrate the left's incapacity to ever make a real decision. So this is when a lot of, of, of genuine socialists reconcile themselves as some form of liberal democratic capitalism. So I think this moment is really key in the history of the left and not enough people know about it. I agree. Um, 
I would say just generally speaking, the, you know, the subjects, Danny, that you, that you have written about were probably premature and that, uh, disillusionment with the left. I think there is still a great deal of possibility, um, especially if you look beyond Germany to France, um, and to, and to Spain, what was going on there. But in any case, the new beginning group whose original name was the Leninist organization formed in Berlin as a small discussion group initially of, um, kind of renegade communists, uh, many of whom had already been expelled from the party for opposing that third period social fascism period strategy. Uh, and instead, they were, uh, you know, um, oriented to more pragmatic, unified action with other socialists. Um, and then there were a number of left-wing social democrats who were so angry at their party leadership that they were willing to clandestinely organize in this group. They called a self-Leninist organization, not because uh, of any great admiration for the really existing Bolsheviks or Leninists of the time, but really because that uh, 1902 text, What is to be Done, had such kind of inspiring things to say about how like, an organization of professional revolutionaries might take shape. And um, so the founders of the org, as it was known, took uh, a page out of that early text almost viewing the conditions of late Weimar dawning fascism in Germany at, or, or around 1930 as analogous to conditions under czarist autocracy around the turn of the 20th century. So it was quite the historical analogy there. And they basically wanted to operate secretly within those major parties and convert middle functionaries, not like the upper leadership and not like ordinary rank and file, but kind of like middle functionaries who ran cadres and who ran kind of the party schools and all that, convert them to a unity program. Uh, and they had some success, but uh, really it was a long-term strategy that was cut short by the Nazi seizure of power in January 1933. And at that point, New Beginning published a manifesto, um, uh, which essentially had the title Neubeginnen, which in German means begin anew, but in English translations was sort of turned into a noun, New Beginning. So that's how it became known internationally. Uh, and it claimed right, yeah, to speak- it's a command in German, it, right? It is, indeed. There's yeah. an exclamation point in that pamphlet's title. So right. begin anew, and that meant replace the old kind of, uh, what they viewed as the obsolete leadership, uh, and uh, empower the kind of the, the militant youth of, uh, of the rank and files of social democrat organizations, and New Beginning had great success, for example, in organizing among the socialist workers' youth in Berlin. They recruited a lot of members directly into the organization that way and kind of like surreptitiously steered the policies of the SAJ, as it was known, um, toward this unity program. And then, you know, developed a pretty impressive underground network between 1933 and 35 that gathered intelligence on uh, like Nazi industrial production on like the mood and morale uh, in various industrial sectors. There was uh, some organization in professional organizations like, uh, like white collar work. Um, the kind of new beginning core, which was you know, about 100 people, it was a small group with several hundred people in its periphery. It was about one third working class, uh, one third kind of white collar workers, professionals, lawyers, and such. And then the reigning third were academics. They were theorists, university students, intellectuals. 
So it was a really relatively balanced group demographically. Uh, I, I, you know, mostly men, I would say, but uh, also uh, a number of significant women socialists were involved in the group too, such as the psychoanalyst Edith Jacobson, who was involved in like Reichian radical psychoanalysis at the time and sort of brought theories of sexual revolution to the fold of the group. So yeah, that's that's New Beginning Group. They suffered a wave of repression in 1935. Um, in fact, it, it seems that uh, just one or two uh, members of the group were, or you know, people who are familiar with the group were arrested and interrogated. Um, the Gestapo arrested a lot of people and had no idea about the extent of the actual group's network. It was sort of accidental that in the dragnet, they caught some of these New Beginning members. But uh, working within Germany became very difficult after 35 for all resistance groups. And that's when their exile politics really took off. Uh, and there was a lot of publicity work in Prague and Paris in London and New York, building up alliances usually with the left wing of the Labour Party or the Socialist Parties in those countries. And engaging in real sort of anti-fascist work, for example, and you know, volunteering in the Spanish Civil War, uh, so there's a lot going on in the 30s as New Beginning expands its activities sort of beyond German borders. So, Terry, in this chapter, you also talk a bit about sex. Could you maybe bring that up? Because I think it, it's uh, interesting how it's kind of perceived as a prefigurative moment in what comes later in the 60s. Yes. So I'll answer this question by by way of saying that one of the problems in my view that uh, arises in a lot of the retrospective criticism of the 60s new left, um, especially in a lot of democratic socialist circles these days, a certain brand of kind of workerist leftism in the US today, it's that the US new left, uh, and I promise I'll get to your question, but this is my entree to it, the U.S. New Left was primarily a countercultural uh, phenomenon. It was uh, 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 obsessed with cultural revolution, which uh, or, or you know revolution of everyday life, in liberating sexual practices, and uh, sort of focus on everyday discrimination. But the U.S. New Left somehow had lost sight of the broader structural critique that was a hallmark of the Marxist old left, or had lost sight of the political goal of seizing state power in some way, uh, and instead had, had turned toward minor kind of uh, contestation on the cultural terrain. I think this is a misperception uh, for many reasons, but uh, most importantly, it's because I think uh, one hallmark of new lefts in the long durée, you know, not only in the 60s, but looking back to New Beginning and some of these interwar groups, was that they really did approach culture or cultural revolution from the perspective of social totality. And the kind of sexual liberation that was uh, kind of an experiment within the ranks of the org New Beginning in the 1930s was connected to this idea, most famously articulated, I think, by Wilhelm Reich in some of his writings uh, in those years, that authoritarianism, uh, capitalism were not economic forms only, or even primarily, but they had a fundamental effect on shaping the form of the family, 
on shaping the development of individual psychology, not only in the bourgeoisie, but also in the working class. So any kind of truly revolutionary movement uh, needed to integrate sort of an avant-garde approach to cultural matters. Uh, There's kind of a taste for modernism and aesthetics, for kind of radical transgression of old traditional forms, but uh, also to kind of approach sexual liberation as a way of awakening working class consciousness more broadly. And Reich's movement, the sexual political movement, sex poll as it was known, was like basically, uh, um, it was a bunch of meetings and institutional workshops that brought in working class kids and middle class kids to talk about sex openly at a time when, you know, uh, this wasn't, in some working class circles was taboo or was not, um, you know, this type of sex ed was not so widely available. Uh, And there's even the hope among the org that you could, if you talked about sexual matters in a way that uh, was oriented toward liberating the libido, overcoming repressions in family life and kind of individual social relations, you could even potentially like win over some of the fascist youth to the left because all young people like sex and want to talk about it. And if you approached it in this liberatory Speak way, for yourself. <laughs> then perhaps you might like attract. Terry does not um, speak on you. behalf of American prestige. <laughs> We're here an anti-sex podcast. I so would comment th- here, but I'm not a young person anymore, so it doesn't. Well, neither am I. Young at so. heart, Derek. Your carefree, giddy spirit enlightens us all. <laughs> so I, I will say that um, I do talk about some radical feminist currents in the interwar years, especially those that were active in Spain. Uh, in the anarchist militias. Um, uh, And I do talk about a number of women protagonists, but in this early period, these interwar new lefts, I would say that there wasn't enough attention to social reproduction and to gender and to sex and to like the sexual relations that didn't simply take the form of kind of a male privileged uh, approach to sexual liberation. And that also applied in some respects to the 1960s sexual, sexual liberation too. Um, you know, like Daniel Cohn-Bendit in the early French student movement in 1967, their first campaigns was to like, to liberate the women's dorms, uh, and essentially make them co-ed. Uh, so like, you know, it's a bit cringe looking back on some of these, um, kind of male led moments, uh, movements for sexual liberation, which, um, uh, later feminists, uh, uh, you know, of the late sixties and seventies would react against. Uh, sometimes we react against the machismo of the of the male New West leaders, uh, but uh, I think the interwar moment and its approach to radical culture, um, which uh, you know goes back to Lukash, is just the center of any revolution. You know, uh, cultural revolution needs to be part and parcel of uh, a, a radical change in the social and economic forms as well. You know, this totalistic or holistic approach to culture is a hallmark of New Lefts. And I think is a characteristic of that most political of new lefts um, uh, that uh, kind of took center stage in the 1960s. It's only in retrospect that I think we tend to fetishize the counterculture and the cultural theory. And from that perspective, well, it's it does because look the boomers still, became the head of the magazines and they indeed, fetishized themselves, right? And I, mean, I say you get not just true mass culture post war. Yeah. Yes, I agree. So not just in our retrospect as. Uh, you know, observers, but in the, in looking those boomers, those former 68ers, 
in their own political maturation, I think they also kind of subscribe to a more liberal or left liberal, the best cases, form of politics, um, uh, which did separate culture out from uh, broader kind of and deeper forms of social consultation. I think you're right about that. Yeah, and, and that's where a lot of the um, criticisms from our generation of leftists of the new left comes from. But we'll, we'll come to that later because I, I want to return to the story and particularly the moment of exile that you mentioned before I talked about sex. Um, could you maybe talk about Spain? Because Spain, and Derek, we really need to do something on the Civil War. Spain was was crucial for really producing the imagination of, of I think, basically the entire 20th century from far left to far right. So how does Spain figure into the story you tell about New Beginning? So the New Beginning group had its foreign bureau based in Prague. And from there, it was instrumental in recruiting uh, a number of uh, volunteers, uh, scores of volunteers, German volunteers for the Republican cause uh, in the Spanish Civil War. Um, Now, the Civil War began... In 1936, um, uh, and would last until like early 1939. So, New Beginning cultivated these ties with the Spanish Socialist Party, and you know it was funneling people into Spain. And the Spain, you know, is, is famous for the numbers of volunteers that joined the International Brigades, which is the communist organized part of the kind of the Republican defense. So it's pretty diverse, heterogeneous forces that were arrayed in defense of the Republic against uh, Francisco Franco and the nationalists. Um, you had, you know, like the uh, official army, I guess, the more organized and conventional army that was uh, the loyalist army fighting on the behalf of the democratically elected government of Spain. Uh, and it's, you know, it was a popular front government sort of uniting various currents of the left and bourgeois Democrats. But then you had anarchist militias of all kinds popping up, especially in sort of the strongholds of anarchism like Catalonia, uh, which, you know, the, the, uh, uh, it's been made famous in the reportage of George Orwell, um, which I discuss a little bit in the book. Um, and you have like a number of these odd formations, like the, uh, the workers party of Marxist unification, PUM, which was formed by ex Trotskyists and, uh, New Beginning had some ties to, to Poom. So the terrain for sort of dissident revolutionary socialism that was aligned neither with uh, the sort of reformist socialist party, and even within the socialist party in Spain, there was a conflict over kind of radicals and reformists, so it wasn't a, a monolithic party by any means. Um, and dissident socialist currents that were not organized in the Spanish Communist Party, which is actually pretty small initially. Um, it would become more prominent, however, because of the reliance on uh, Soviet aid for the defense of the Republic, you know, military aid and funding. Um, so uh, it was in this really kind of diverse space of um, armed struggle on the front against uh, Franco and the nationalists, but also like on sort of the home front behind the front lines, this space of radical cultural experimentation that I think new lefts really blossomed for a little while. And, uh, you know, I, I've already mentioned, you know, there were experiments in um, uh, sort of uh, uh, women's autonomy, um, like the Mujeres Libres movement was a kind of all women's uh, social movement with its 
own kind of uh, daycare infrastructure, uh, mutual aid structure, libraries, party press, uh, and had like a very visible street presence. And as George Orwell wrote, like in in some places, like in uh, Barcelona, it was like you could get you know arrested and, and and rung up just for wearing like a tie. So like even visible displays of bourgeois habits were almost like taboo on the streets during this revolutionary period. So it was a great moment of possibility. It was also a, mo- a moment of great existential danger and and tragedy. And uh, one of those tragic aspects occurred in May 1937 in Barcelona when members of the PUM and the anarchists uh, had a falling out with the local Catalan nationalists who were actually on the Republican side uh, and the communists. So there was street fighting uh, between factions of the left. And that began the kind of Soviet-sponsored campaign of repression against a lot of these dissident leftists. And New Beginning got caught up in that. One of their own members, Mark Ryan, was uh, disappeared, essentially. And there was a big investigation that New Beginning members undertook. Um, one, uh, actually, a young Willy Brandt aided them in that investigation. Uh, he would later become uh, Chancellor of West Germany, but at this time, he was still like member of a Trotskyist organization. And they essentially concluded that communist agents had kidnapped Mark Ryan uh, because of his father's uh, Menshevik affiliation and um, likely assassinated him outside of Madrid somewhere. And thus began New Beginning's own bitter disillusionment with Soviet communism. So Terry, this, of course, brings us to the favorite topic of American prestige, World War II. So how does World War II, broadly speaking, um, affect the direction of new leftism and new beginning in particular? World War II was a caesura in this radical tradition that I outline in the book. It's the, the shortest chapter of the book is devoted to the wartime activities of a lot of these new leftists in exile. But uh, important things are happening. So essentially, New Beginnings members um, ended up, uh, you know, by the time the war broke out, um, they their main activities were located in, Lo- in London and New York City. Uh, there were other kind of uh, locations as well. Um, and a number of new left, or I should say New Beginning members, were forced to kind of flee to the south of France when France was invaded and had to somehow get out of France. Um, and just like on a, a little tangent, the kind of famous story of Varian Fry and the Emergency Rescue Committee that was working out of Marseille to procure visas for all these famous European artists and intellectuals who had come to the United States. This ERC was actually formed as a front organization for New Beginning to get its political refugees out first. And then they could get the more famous uh, you know, writers and intellectuals out. And that sort of was a way for them to raise funds and all that. But so once New Beginning is operating entirely in exile, it decides to throw its weight behind the allied war effort, um, the British and US war effort. And essentially this meant offering the intelligence assistance of New Beginning members. And both the, the kind of British propaganda and military intelligence and U.S. kind of propaganda, organi- you know, the OWI and then the sort of nascent CIA, the OSS, they did take a keen interest in what these German socialists might be able to offer in terms of research and analysis. Um, uh, so 
um, within kind of U.S. government and British government, New Beginning was kind of reading uh, newspapers uh, that were being published in Germany. Uh, they were keeping tenuous ties active to like members of the underground, um, but they were providing aid and advice to the Western capitalist war machine. And this did bring up some difficult questions about whether this was wise, like what compromises would these revolutionary socialists have to make? And would they slowly become assimilated into the, uh, let's say, more reformist, progressive, democratic approach to, you know, uh, to social reform? And, and it's indeed, I think a lot of the leading theorists of New Beginning, like Ricard Lerventhal in London, they did become uh, more liberal Democrats in exile. Um, and I think that was to a certain extent a function of just working with the labor left, but also working with the British and US governments uh, in what they determined to be the primary activity of defeating fascism militarily. Uh, and that military defeat of fascism, they believe, should be aided by an underground uh, kind of um, autochthonous revolution within Germany. Um, they viewed the eventual liberation of Germany as freeing the suppressed forces of democracy. Uh, they had this vision of a democratic revolution. And I, you know, I think we could probably discuss later what that looked like um, in 1944-45. There was a real analog to this imagined democratic revolution in Germany, but Allied policy would be a great disappointment to these uh, New Beginning members and their kind of uh, their allies in the sort of nonconformist socialist scene uh, of those years. So that's essentially what was going on during the war. I recount also how remaining members of New Beginning who either had been arrested and were in concentration camps or had been drafted into penal battalions in the German army or were still free and active but like working in the factories in germany like they their their paths diverged from the exile intellectuals and leaders who had to make all these kinds of compromises with the allied war effort and so it was underground i think that a lot of those original revolutionary impulses were incubated um and came to the fore in the immediate post-war years and that leaves us at a good place to end. And in, uh, in the next episode of the series, we'll talk about the post-war and then in particular the 1960s New Left and its legacy. Uh, but Terry Renault, thank you so much for joining us. Everyone check out New Lefts and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. Thank you.